our Father in heaven. We pray now that you would take these words, which are true and good and right, and you would cause us all to hear them and believe them in a way that would glorify you, honor you. We also pray that you would cause us to hear these words in a way that we would be filled with faith, filled with hope, filled with love. Particularly, Lord, this morning, I pray that we would not merely go through the motions of church, but we would meet with you. And in meeting with you, we would be changed by you. Spirit of God, would you move in this place, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, believe it or not, the end of Exodus is near. Here's how this is going to work. This morning, we're going to look at chapter 34. Tomorrow morning, I'm going on vacation. And I assigned Austin five chapters next week. I'm not joking. And then I'm going to come back and we're going to conclude Exodus. So that's what lies ahead. Austin, everyone's waiting with bated breath to see how this goes. Hopefully you're better at that than me. Okay. Yeah, yeah. If Dan reaches out to you this week and says, would you read scripture next Sunday? Like, I would advise you to have a stomach ache or... Um, a bum knee, something, okay? I'm just kidding. We'll find a representative passage to word from. Friends, this is a, a vitally important and timely message in the story of Exodus, and I hope vitally important and timely for us. We read Exodus knowing the end from the beginning. I think because we know the end of the story, we don't hang intention through the story the way those living the story did. And so what we've seen unfolding over the last few chapters is the question, how is God going to respond to the covenant rebellion of his people. That question, not in the mind of God, but in the lives of these Israelites, is a very real pressing question. How's God going to respond to our covenant rebellion? And what Exodus 34 definitively makes clear is this. The work of God through Israel will move forward because of God's covenant faithfulness and God's mercy. The work of God through Israel will move forward because of God's covenant faithfulness and God's mercy. And this becomes a norm 
of the Scripture. This is why the Exodus story is so shaping even for us. The work of God through His church moves forward because of God's covenant faithfulness and because of God's mercy. We can even personalize that a little further. The work of God in your life moves forward because of God's covenant faithfulness and because of God's mercy. And my prayer this morning is that just sets in on us. God loves his people. God saves his people. God delivers his people. God is faithful to his people even when they're unfaithful. Praise his name. Praise his name. Praise his name. Now, if you only can give me 60 seconds, there you go. You're welcome. I want us to see this in the passage, okay? So let's look at Exodus 34 together. The first point, if you're a note taker, is covenant renewal. Covenant renewal. And by the way, we have two points this morning, but, but the two points are not subsets of the passage. We really got to go through the whole chapter for point one and then go through the whole chapter for point two because that's just kind of the way that it's going to unfold for us, okay? So the question coming into chapter 34 is this. How will God respond to the covenant unfaithfulness of Israel? We have a point covenant renewal because a covenant has been broken. And it wasn't broken by God. It was broken by the people. So quickly, God delivered his people Israel out of captivity in Egypt. He worked miraculously to destroy their enemies. Then they moved, or moved on a journey to a promised land, but God took them the long way. Why the long way? Because they weren't ready for the short way. They weren't ready for the land of promise. God had work to do in them. We've been saying this, and I'll keep saying it. God got them out of Egypt. Now God's got to get Egypt out of them. So they go the long way. They go to the mountain where God had originally met with Moses, and God meets with Moses and with the people, and he gives them his covenant with them. Their, their, their relational the, the terms of their relationship, God, I am your God, you are my people, and I call on my people to live in this particular way. He gave it to them in the Ten Commandments. He gave it to them in the totality of his law. Then, while God is meeting a second time on the mountain with Moses to tell Moses exactly how to build a dwelling place for God among his people, which is what the people so yearned for. While God is giving these very commands to Moses, they commit idolatry. They build a golden calf and they say, this is our God. And so Moses comes down, comes down the mountain with two tablets representing the covenant between God and his people, which God wrote, the scripture says, in his own finger. Moses sees the idolatry and the covenant breaking and the covenant unfaithfulness, and he smashes the tablets 
on the ground as a, a means of saying you have broken the covenant, which is symbolized here. From that point, all the way coming into the beginning of 34, what we have is Moses pleading before God. We have Moses pleading before God. And what he's been saying is, go with us. Dwell among us. Be our God. Keep your promises. Redeem us. Go with us. That is the theme over and over and over running through chapter 32 and chapter 33. One summary of that, chapter 33, verse 15 and 16. Moses says to God, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And what happens in chapter 34 is God visibly, verbally, and physically renews his covenant with his people. God makes it abundantly clear that he will go with his people. He will fully move his people all the way into the land. He will bless them. He will be their God. And they Will be his people. And so what we see working through here, particularly here in verses one through nine, is God answers Moses' plea by renewing the covenant. So God says, verse one, Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be ready by morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite the mountain. Why? Because the holiness of the Lord's descending there. So Moses cut the two tablets of stone like the first and he rose early in the morning and went up to Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him. And he took in his hand two tablets of stone Verse 5, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. So Moses had pleaded with God for two things, a renewed covenant and a vision of his glory. He had pleaded with him for a renewed covenant and a manifestation of who God is. And God had told Moses in chapter 33 he would give it to him. And here in verse 6 and following, God gives this vision of himself to Moses. So God makes himself known before renewing his covenant. Verse 6, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed... What's God going to proclaim about himself? Reveal your glory means reveal who you are. Reveal your character. Reveal your nature. What's God going to reveal about himself? The Lord, the Lord. A God merciful 
and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Keeping steadfast love, that's covenant faithfulness for thousands. Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But who will by no means clear the guilty? Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. So God has revealed. I, yes, am a God of justice. I will not clear the guilty, but I too am a God of mercy, of grace, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, abounding in faithfulness. I will be known as the God who redeems his people based upon my faithfulness, my love, my grace. God's revealing this about himself. So now watch what Moses does. Verse 9. If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it's a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your Inheritance. You notice what Moses does there? He says, okay, Lord, this is who you are. Now be this to us. Be gracious and merciful and abounding in steadfast love and showing compassion to us. God, be this to us. Go with us. And it's, it's, it's in, in light of this revealing and this plea that God reiterates and renews his covenant. Verse 10. God said, behold, I'm making a covenant. Before all your people, I will do marvels such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord. For it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. The Lord says, I am your God and you will be my people. And the covenant is renewed based upon God's faithfulness to his covenant and based upon God's merciful nature. And this is going to be symbolized in verse 27. The Lord said to Moses, write these words, for in accordance with these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So Moses was there for another 40 days and 40 nights. He neither ate bread nor drank, and he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. So the Lord has given to the people his covenant in the tablet. Now, there's one other thing that we need to notice. A covenant based upon mercy and grace and forgiveness and love 
can still have expectation for the recipients of grace, mercy, compassion, and love. Our modern usage of grace means free gift, no strings attached. Our modern usage of mercy means forgiveness with no strings attached. No strings attached. Yes, the Lord gives it. But those who are in covenant with the Lord are called upon by the Lord to live in a certain way for the glory of the Lord. And we got to figure out how to put those two things together because what I just skipped over were verses 11 through 26. And in a verses 11 through 26, what happens is God says, look at, look at the first word of verse 11. Observe. What I commanded you this day. God says, you're my people. I forgive you. I renew my covenant with you. I will walk with you. I will go among you. But as your God, I still have expectation of you. Observe my commandments. So we can be freely forgiven, graciously forgiven, and expected to live before the Lord in ways that glorify the Lord. Those things are not antonyms, they can work together. God's making this abundantly clear. And so what happens in verses 11 through 26 is God reiterates two things. He reiterates the 10 commandments or the 10 words found in Exodus 20. And he reiterates the totality of the law which he gave his people in Exodus 20, 21, 22, and 23. So get this. I'm your God, live accordingly. We fail miserably. I forgive you and restore you, and I still want you to live accordingly. You see how this works? It all goes together. Now, what happens in these verses is a summation of Exodus 20, 21, 22, and 23. The Lord focuses on six things. Don't make a covenant with the inhabitants of the lands you're going into. Don't have physical idols. Keep the feast of the unleavened bread. Keep the Sabbaths. Have no leaven in your blood sacrifices. And he makes an appeal for offering the best of the first fruits. Now, why those six things? That's a fun thing for you to spend your afternoon researching. There's lots of speculation about that. But here's the thing. All six of those things are in the, the law given in Exodus 20, 21, 22, and 23. There's no reason to think that the Lord is reducing his expectations of his people. He's actually reiterating them. I'm kind of of the camp that he's reiterating the ones that are most pertinent to the day. I mean, what have they just done? Taken up pagan ritual, made an idol, and worshipped it. But either way, here's what God says. I'm renewing my covenant. Our relationship's going forward. Now, live faithfully as my people. The beautiful reality of Exodus 
34 is God makes this very clear and very abundantly known. So before we leave this point, I think there are some implications and some applications for us. Number one. Takeaway number one. God is revealing his character here, and and he's revealing that relationship with him is not based solely on law-keeping and is not based solely on performance before God. Because if it was based upon performance and law-keeping, God would just have broken or walked away from covenant with Israel. They failed, and they failed miserably. But the Lord is showing that relationship with him is not rooted in our keeping of law. Second, this section shows us that relationship with God is defined by God. The terms of the relationship were not up for discussion or arbitration or court hearings. God defines the terms of the relationship. This is what it looks like to live before me. Friends, we live at a particular space and time where everyone is wanting to redefine everything about God and about his expectations and about his word. And so when you pull up Twitter today, you will be bombarded or Facebook or um, is it called Instagram? I'm dating myself here. Instagram, when you pull these things up, what you will realize is there are voices pushing in saying, we can't believe this. We can't believe this. We can't carry this out. I just want to free you up. It is the Lord who determines the terms and the expectations of relationship with him. And if as the Lord reveals it, we cling to it and accept it and believe it. Third, there is enough space for for a relationship to be rooted in mercy and for there to be expectation. Let me say that one more time. There is there is space in relating to God for it to be rooted in mercy and there still be expectation. So God could look at Israel and say, I am a God abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and then say, observe what I command you. There's space to say, Jesus, for Jesus to say, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And to say, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. And to say, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. Not as means of earning the love of the Lord, but because you've received the love of the Lord. God 
reveals his glorious character as a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This will appear repeatedly, at least six times in the New Testament, as the writers of Scripture tell of the nature of God. This is our, then pushes to our, our, our fourth implication. We know the mercy, grace, slow to anger, and steadfast love of the Lord through Jesus, His Son. The revelation says God holds the guilty accountable and forgives his people. How does that come to pass? The New Testament tells us it comes to pass when Jesus offers his life as the forgiveness, as the sacrifice for the sins of the guilty. Our hope of knowing God and his mercy only comes through Jesus. And then fifth implication. As we read through this story, one of the things that's going on over and over is Moses pleading before God on behalf of the people, right? Now, I'll put all my cards on the table. I don't think the outcome of this story was ever up in the air. Well, then why the interaction? Why the pleading and the back and the forth? I think there's lots of philosophical answers to that. But I think one of the answers to it is is to, to lead us through the movement so that we see how gracious it is that the Lord would forgive his people. We don't just quickly gloss over it. But one of the things I've been thinking as I've been walking through that, that warp and that woof is I would be thankful for Moses if I were an Israelite. And I'd be thankful that Moses was persistently pleading on behalf of the people. And if you're selfish like me, you might be like, I I want a Moses. I want somebody persistently pleading for my sinful behalf before the Lord. Friends, do you know what Romans 8 tells us? It tells us that Jesus is that for us. Romans 8, chapter 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Listen, Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. It is Jesus who has 
offered his life for our sin, who has risen in victory over sin and death, and who intercedes persistently on our behalf. He is our covenant keeper, our covenant faithfulness, and the one who pleads on our behalf. We, we need Jesus. We need Jesus. And so this pushes us then to the second point. Changed in the presence. Changed in the presence. Um, the end... So, so this story begins... With God saying, or Moses saying, God, I need to see your glory. And God says, I'm going to show it. And God shows it by revealing his character to Moses and then giving him, restoring and renewing the covenant. And then the end of the passage, picking up in verse 29, tells us this. Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, and he came down from the mountain. Moses did not know that his... The skin of his face shone or had become radiant because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses and behold, the skin of his face shone and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining, and Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. Him. This is an amazing story. It's an amazing story. What does it tell us? It tells us that Moses meeting with God and seeing the glory of God had a visible physical effect on Moses. That's what it tells us. It tells us that the people knew when Moses had met with God based upon the visible physical effect that it had upon him. It wasn't a one-time thing. It continued on. So Moses' meeting with God produced a change, not just spiritual, but physically manifested in Moses. Okay, that's awesome. Why? Well, I think number one, because the Lord wanted to make sure the people knew that the Lord had spoken to Moses. It bore fruit. It changed Moses. Now, wouldn't it be awesome if every one of us who truly met with the Lord had some very clear checkbox sign, you know, I don't know what it could be, like a big R on our forehead, like regenerated, or I, I don't know. But that's not how it works. Like the Lord doesn't always give these physical manifestations of having been in his presence. But I think what's being established here is to meet the Lord is to be transformed. 
To meet the Lord is to be transformed. And we'll have to depend on the rest of the scriptures to unfold this for us. But what we're told in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 is that we who know Christ are called into the presence of the Lord and into the presence of the Lord in a way that we will be changed and can't veil it, is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. I just put this out there to say, like, we don't get the shining face But what if we believe that our place as the children of God called for real transformation in who we are that cannot be squelched or hidden or taken away? What if we didn't just yearn to go to heaven when we die, to have good moral friends at church, To do nice things for the world and to play the church game. But we yearn to be transformed because we truly have met with the Lord. We could talk hours about what that might look like. But just what if that was our yearning? Like what if we yearned to truly meet with the Lord as much as we tried to have good theology? What if we yearn to truly meet with the Lord as much as we try to have all the answers? What if we yearn to meet with and know the tangible blessing and presence of the Lord as much as we try to give our kids a perfect life? Just really trying to redirect our hearts toward the Lord himself here. Because what we need through Jesus by the power of the Spirit, is to meet the Lord and find His redeeming grace. And if we found it, to be renewed in it again and again and again and again. So our Father and our God, we pray now you would take these words from your word. And as much as they are true and right and good for your people, you would drive them deeply into our being. And we pray this all now in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen.